As a matter of policy, we decided to chuck people in jail for just about anything. I mean, we've tried to incarcerate our way out of this, and it's just really expensive to do that, right? Like, the public is paying the cost. The individuals who are having contact with this system, they're also paying. Is inequality creating mass incarceration? Is mass incarceration creating inequality? A little of both. How does this all fit A lot together? of both. A lot of both. <laughs> From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, uh, one thing we've we've talked about on this podcast in the past is how uh, uh, when we look at economics, we don't always uh, look at all of the costs or all of the benefits. We'll focus on one or the other. And I think a, a great example of that in the United States is our huge prison industrial complex. Yeah, it's interesting because as a matter of policy, we decided it was better to chuck people in jail for just about anything as a way of fighting crime. But in the end, it may have created more crime because it creates more poverty and criminalizes more things. And, you know, the, the repercussions and the costs of right. mass incarceration are almost certainly massively outweighing the benefits of prosecuting people and throwing them in jail today. Uh, right. Obviously, you know, you need to balance the costs, the economic costs, the pure, pure dollar costs of incarcerating people with the benefits of, of the legitimate role of the criminal justice system and discouraging bad behavior. Uh, but we definitely seem to have gotten our approach out of whack. And today on the show, we get to talk to an expert in that, Dr. Robin Cox, about the economics of mass incarceration. Uh, she's an assistant professor at the University of Southern California School of Social Work um, and an economist and inequality researcher. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to try to tease it apart. Ultimately, you know, it's, it's interesting to try to understand the cause and effect here, right? Is inequality uh, creating mass incarceration? Is mass incarceration creating inequality? A little of both. How does this all fit A lot together? of both. A lot of both. Yeah, <laughs> a lot, a lot of, both. of both. But, but, but we'll, we'll ask Dr. Cox to explain that to us. My name is Robin Cox. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Southern California. And my research is centered on the intersection of the criminal legal system and inequality. I'm interested in understanding the barriers faced by marginalized communities um, with an emphasis on those disproportionately faced by Black communities. And that also means that the approach I take is from a life course approach. So it's more holistic in the sense that I look at the CLS contact as a continuum from initial contact to reintegration in order to understand um, how these uh, policies, the institutional policies and, and systemic barriers that might be created by the system impact individuals and communities. 
So Robin, um, you've obviously done a lot of research into the consequences of mass incarceration, but you know, what interests me in particular is this weird feedback loop, obviously, between mass incarceration and inequality. So on the one hand, mass incarceration creates more inequality, and on the other hand, massive amounts of inequality creates incarceration to a certain extent. How do we disentangle these two forces? Typically, um, what you see with the research is you will see research that focuses on, you know, understanding criminal behavior, understanding what might deter criminal behavior, understanding, in my case, I'm interested in what leads some groups to disproportionate contact. But then there's also another aspect of research that looks at the effect of the criminal legal system on the individuals and their families and communities, and then what effect that has, like once someone has that contact, what effect does that contact have um, when they're transitioning back into society? And then it, of course, circles back around to that has implications for if individuals and people aren't able, aren't able to successfully transition, that could have implications for further criminal behavior, recidivism, and for families as well. Uh, so I think to answer your question, we as researchers try and disentangle these effects, you know, separately, I, I suppose, because the system is, there is this feedback loop to the system, right? That you, where you have inequality leads to more incarceration um, and then incarceration further leading to more inequality, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I can give an example of that uh, from my own research where uh, my colleagues and I, Jamie and Cunningham and Alberto Ortega um, and Kenneth Wally have a fairly new paper that we've been working on looking at the effects of residential segregation on homicides. And we find a robust relationship between residential segregation, which we know has been caused by discriminatory policy and, and individual actions. And, and so um, we find a robust li uh, link between residential segregation and non-white homicides, for example. But then, you know, on the other end, I might conduct some research on what is the effect of the timing of incarceration, for example, I have a paper on the timing of incarceration and how it impacts housing insecurity. And in particular, I look at homelessness. Um, and so whether or not one is incarcerated as a youth or a transitional age youth, which is a young adult, or at age 25 and older, does that impact the duration of homelessness and the age that one experiences their first homelessness? And, and so we also do find an association between that timing of incarceration and the age at first homelessness where someone uh, who is incarcerated at earlier ages experiences homelessness earlier. So it's kind of like you just, I, I guess, just kind of chipping away at understanding the effects of this system, if that makes sense. Yeah. So actually, why don't we level set quickly if we can? And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but can you give us some stats on how many people are currently incarcerated in the United States and who those people are, 
gender, race, et cetera, maybe relate those numbers to other countries? Yeah. Um, so as you may know, uh, the United States has the largest incarceration rate in the world. It has the largest incarcerated population, I think China's second. And uh, we have the large, the highest incarceration rate in the world. And so just to give an idea in terms of the criminal legal system, the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, in their survey of state and criminal history information systems found over 110 criminal records. Um, so that's contact with, it's not necessarily convictions, but those are the number of criminal records that they found in the United States. And of course, that number is not accounted for duplicates. But as you imagine, even once accounting for that, that's a huge number. So 110 million criminal records. And I just wanted to qualify that uh, to say that that doesn't account for duplicates in the system and that doesn't mean that those records led to a conviction or an incarceration, but that gives you an idea of the contact that we have in this country with the criminal legal system. There are some estimates in terms of conviction. Um, one estimate is by 2010, so that's just right after the height of incarceration, for example, there were 19 million individuals with the felony conviction. Um, of course, these numbers disproportionately impact minorities and in particular Blacks. There's been some estimates that approximately 50% of Black men are arrested by age 23. And again, in 2010, there were an estimated 33% of Blacks that had felony convictions. There, were, there are about 6.3 million individuals with, um, who are supervised under our corrections. So that would mean community supervision, so probation and parole, and then those incarcerated in jails and prisons. You know, then there was over 2 million, there's over 2 million people who are incarcerated in jails or prisons specifically. Uh, most of those individuals who are incarcerated are men, the vast majority, about 93%. Um, and then those who experience the highest rate of incarceration, reflect those who have experienced sort of historical marginalization and oppression. So Blacks have the highest rate followed by American Indians and Alaska Natives, Alaska Natives, which many might not know, um, Hispanics, and then whites, and then finally Asians have the lowest rate. So, so to put this all in perspective, this is in a country of uh, approximately 335 million people, 110 million arrests, contacts with, uh, with the criminal justice system. That statistic that one, one in three Black men have been imprisoned, right? Not, not just have contact with police, have been imprisoned. And that 50% of Black men have been arrested by age 23. And that gets back to your comment about how the younger you are when you have contact with the system, the worse your life, worse your life outcomes, the, the, the higher the rate of homelessness, and I'm sure a lot of other things. And that's very consistent with uh, uh, the empirical research on other uh, bad outcomes from stress uh, environments when you're younger. So it, it's, it, it helps explain a lot. Yeah, and yeah, that's one in three have had a felony conviction, and then other estimates have estimated that of Black men born in 2001, one in three are estimated to be incarcerated as well. 
So yeah. yeah, for incarceration and conviction, that number is about one in three. And, and it's not simply a matter of do the crime and do the time. These felony convictions stick with you, uh, right? It it makes it harder to get employment. It makes it harder to uh, to get a loan or to to rent an apartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you could speak to that about the, the, the how how just having a felony conviction can influence uh, outcomes uh, throughout your life. Yeah, so having a felony conviction worsens employment and earnings. And of course, that effect is worse for racial and ethnic minorities as well. It lowers the accumulation of assets. You get less access to credit markets as a result, lower levels of wealth, and has an impact on racial wealth disparities. And, and also, you know, the felony conviction and then um, a subsequent incarceration can really be, di- be disruptive to social networks, which we know are also really important for um, obtaining and maintaining meaningful employment. This affects also, of course, though the loved ones who are supporting those individuals who ha- have been incarcerated or, or have had these felony convictions. So I have thought about contact with the criminal legal system as sort of uh, an economic shock to the household. And the reason for that is that families often lose income um, when they have a loved one incarcerated and they incur debt. And the Ella Baker Center for uh, Human Rights has estimated that these families incur on average, almost $14,000 in debt paying for court-related costs and fines. You wrote a recent report on the impacts of incarceration on Black women specifically. So tell us about those findings. I have a paper in the Review of Black Political Economy that looked at, um, just wanted to understand, you know, the plight of women who are incarcerated and and Black women. Um, Black women are disproportionately incarcerated um, just as Black men are. And, um, you know, what I found in writing that paper is that women often are uh, more disadvantaged than the men. Um, They often have lower skills. They suffer from more health conditions than the men do. Um, They've often entered into crime because they've ran away at very early ages from abusive environments. Often their crime is connected to trying to take care of others or and or uh, supporting a problem with substance use. And the other thing that uh, is important to know is that they don't quite have access to the same level of rehabilitative services that the men do while they're incarcerated because there's so few women who are incarcerated relative to men that prisons can't necessarily obtain economies of scale. And so that means that women often don't have the access to some of the programs that men do for um, education, skill development, and they can be worse off once they've been released from prison. Um, and they could have greater labor market penalties as well. So women are, um, you know, even though they're smaller in number, it's, it's also really important to understand and focus on them as well, um, especially if we want to address inequality. So let's talk a little bit more. Is there is there a way to characterize, again, all this stuff is so hard to pull apart, but the 
the broad economic impact of this high level of incarceration, not not just on the individuals, right, but on the on the yeah. economy overall, yeah. right? Because you know, if people are not engaged successfully with the economy, the economy overall shrinks, right? So, is there a way to characterize that? You know, in terms of lost wages, I think the estimate is 370 billion was an annual loss of the earnings from a, a conviction or incarceration. Um, so that was an annual loss estimate that was done by my uh, colleague, Terry Ann Craigie, and, and her co-authors. And, and that's just lost earnings, not other costs. Yeah, that's not other costs. And that's why I mentioned those other costs as well, that yeah. you know, the other costs are huge if you were to bring in the health costs um, right. and the intergenerational costs that, you know, sort of, of course, you'd have to discount that, but the effects on children, another place that I do research is the effect of incarceration on aging and successful aging. And that's another cost because individuals who, you know, the incarcerated population is aging. Individuals are being incarcerated at later ages. They're being released at later ages. And so when you have, if you have this cycle of, of contact with the system, if you have inconsistent job histories, then you may not have adequately been able to pay into social security, which means that mm -hmm. um, we might see increases in racial disparities and aging outcomes as well. And I particular, um, I, I have been looking at cognitive impairment and have found that formerly incarcerated individuals have higher rates of cognitive impairment. So, so all of these things factor into the cost and they're something to consider. And especially as it relates to aging, minority populations heavily rely on social security. So, um, so this is yet something else we have to consider when we think about this sort of beast that we created. Um, but there's other costs to society of the incarcerations that we're learning as well, such as the health costs to incarceration. Both the individual and their family members suffer health consequences from contact with the criminal legal system, right? And from, and from being incarcerated. This contact can lead to higher chronic illnesses that, uh, or greater chronic illnesses that are related to stress. So that's an additional cost as well. Um, and then of course there's intergenerational effects. Uh, there's effects with children. So at which these numbers don't take into consideration as well. And, and there's a, a direct cost to taxpayers just in maintaining the, the criminal justice system as well. The figures I've seen are like 300 to $400 billion a year. So there's a direct cost of, criminal, of maintaining that contact with the criminal justice system. I've seen uh, lower figures, although that, that figure was for, for um, a few years ago, but the figure I've seen is around $180 billion for the expense of the criminal legal system. Uh, and that includes, you know, the fact that we have to house these individuals, provide meals for these, meals for these individuals, employ the staff that services these individuals. But then there's also, you know, we have costs as it relates to um, policing, costs as it relates to courts as well. Uh, so there's a, a myriad of costs as it relates to the system, um, which is why some have called it the prison industrial complex, 
Robin, what should we do about all this? That's a really good question. We need to focus on the root causes, right? So while there's undoubtedly a behavioral aspect to crime, um, we've really focused on that individual aspect of crime um, and have ignored addressing the root causes of crime, uh, which is tantamount to just putting a Band-Aid on the issue, right? So we really need to focus on, you know, those policies that have led to social ex exclusion and um, of historically marginalized individuals and also that have led others to be marginalized, right? And so these policies, we can't fix them by throwing more police at the issue. I mean, we've tried to incarcerate our way out of this. Um, and it's just really expensive to do that, right? Like we, the public is, is paying the cost, the individuals who are having contact with this system, I hope it's, it's clear that they're also paying the cost, uh, a very heavy burden, heavy burden. And it's actually um, leading to entrenched racial disparities and inequality. Um, and so, so I, I think to, the way to fix this is, is to make those investments that, you know, Dr. King and others had argued for many years ago to try and address those root causes, which are really inequality and opportunity. Right. Um, and so it's really important that we look to investing in public goods in these areas, which include education. There's other ways to fight crime. You know, we can fight it through social programming like education, early childhood education, for example, right? And so we, we need to focus on those policies that are really helping to address those, the root causes, more equitable public goods, because, you know, that disinvestment in public goods that happens along with, you know, sort of the residential segregation that we, we've seen over the years is a factor. Making education more equitable is a factor. You know, addressing discrimination in the labor market, these are all factors. And then of course the R word could be a policy as well or reparations um, because we're really trying to address these root causes, right? That have led to these yeah. inequities and I mean, these disparities. I suspect that the biggest problem here is not the criminal justice system, it's the economic system. Yeah, and you know, we've made, I think one of the main things to understand is that as a society, we've made the choice to deal with the, the failure of, the, um, of that system to place that on the burden of the criminal legal system, right? And that's how we got to where we are today is that it's through policy, really. Um, if you just get to uh, the nuts and bolts of the, of the issue. And so I think as a society, we have to go and then reflect and think about, you know, what type of society do we want and um, really be aware of the policies that we implement and how they might impact other groups, especially um, marginalized groups. And so that might mean also doing an audit of our policies to see if they disproportionately impact in a negative way other groups and including that in our cost benefit analysis so that we understand and we know which policies 
you know, on the surface, they might look good on the surface, they might look race neutral, but you know, and when they're being implemented and the uh, effects, the unintended consequences of these policies may not be race neutral, right? Right. And, and let's be clear. I mean, there's no question about it. They're clearly not race neutral in their outcomes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, there's no way to argue otherwise when you have a system that incarcerates black men at five times the rate of white men. A lot of that comes from, you know, you're over policing. You're going to have more contact with police if you are a black man. Yeah. And and look, we I we have a, a paper that was um, recently published in the Journal for Policy Analysis and Management that um, investigated the Edward Byrne State Local Memorial Grant Program, which is considered to be the major funder of the war on drugs. Um, and we investigated the discretionary portion of that grant program to understand within a causal framework to understand um, what was the effect of this program on arrest. And then we also looked at racial disparities in arrests, and we found that racial disparities increased as a result of this program. And with real world outcomes for people in those communities, you had, yes. uh, as, as I understand it, you had uh, not just higher incarceration rates, but, but lower graduation rates, uh, higher levels of unemployment. I mean, well, no, this, this, this specific paper only looked at, um, we, we focused on arrests um, and other outcomes uh, as it related to policing and, and the Ed Byrne program. Um, and so we didn't look at incarceration in this paper, but we found that it increased drug sales arrests, racial disparities in drug sales arrests, and then it also increased drug sales arrests for both blacks and whites as well. So it kind of speaks to the expansion of the net of the criminal justice system, um, but then also how even with that expansion, um, it's still disproportionately impacted blacks, right? That particular policy. We always ask the benevolent dictator question, which is, um, if you were in charge, politics being within your control, what would you yeah, do? No obstacle. No, yeah. no, no How U.S. Senate this? to block yeah. you. What, what would you do? Wow. Uh, that's a tough question. I would probably um, start with reparations just because there was a debt there that is kind of compounding over time in these negative ways that needs to be paid. So I'd probably start there and then look at some of these other factors, look at addressing, you know, discrimination in the labor market, look at making education, access to education more equitable. Um, but I, I, I think that um, I would probably, I would probably start there. But there's a, I know that that's, you know, politically, um, in terms of feasibility, that that becomes a little bit more challenging. But I think I would start there. But but we learned from from the pandemic relief that direct cash transfers Work. help. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. help. Yeah, you know, there's tons of really smart people doing research on that. Um, you probably are aware of William Darity, Alora Duran and Court. Like they're doing. Um, research on on that issue as well on reparations specifically and and more people are interested in it as a policy which which I think is great because I think that you know Dr. King talked about this right before his death that you needed the economic investments that's what he was lobbying for was those economic investments 
in the community. He talks about equality under the law is cheap. You know, it doesn't really cost anything. And what we really need are those economic investments to ensure real equality. And we, we still haven't gotten that to this day. So, so I think I would start there. Our, our final question is always, why do you do this work? Thanks for asking. You know, I do this work because I hope that my work will help improve the lives of others, especially those who are marginalized and disenfranchised. I also do this work because, you know, I wanted to understand and shed light on how the role that the criminal legal system plays in inequalities. And oftentimes we sort of write people off who have been caught up in that system and we, without really understanding the way the system is working and whether or not there's any sort of systemic or institutional barriers that have pushed individuals more towards one way or another. And, you know, I also think that failure to address racial biases in our society, we risk democracy for all Americans, not just for um, Black Americans or other communities of color, like it, it risks the democracy for all Americans. Um, and when we don't address the systematic racial bias um, in our policies in general, and of course, um, I'm interested in the criminal legal system, it leads to the perpetuation of those racial inequalities and overrepresentation of groups that have been marginalized within those sectors uh, that sort of represent social exclusion. And that's kind of how I think about the criminal legal system. And so, you know, again, just when mass incarceration was driven by public policy, so mass incarceration ties right along in that and understanding the policies um, and that, you know, society demand that has demanded and why and um, in order, because failure to understand these, we won't adequately address inequality if we don't do that. And it's a, it's a policy choice and we can, we can make different choices. Exactly. And, and so, so uh, we really appreciate you doing the work on this. We yeah. really appreciate yeah, thank you, so you for much having for me. I appreciate it. A lot of the principles which we've talked about over the past couple of years on this podcast, I think, apply uh, to uh, our criminal justice system, regardless of whether you're looking at it as an economic issue or a social justice issue, whether it's an economic justice issue or a social justice issue. In the end, we always say this about the economy. The purpose of the economy is to broadly improve the lives of people. Yeah right? The, the, the mass of people. And that should be the purpose of the criminal justice system as well. The reason why we created uh, three strikes and you're out and, and mandatory sentencing and the war on drugs and the war on crime and all these things was to Im broadly improve the lives of people, maybe not the people who were incarcerated, yeah. but, but, but broadly, and, it, and it's failed at that. Yeah. And this gets to another one of our our rules of thumb, and that is a solution should solve more problems than than it creates. Yeah. And we need to look at the criminal justice system in the same way we look at our economic policies and ask the same question. Yeah. Does it create more problems than it solves or does it solve more problems than it creates? Yes. And the fact that it may or may not, but let's just 
say that it does reduce crime because you're locking more people up. Are you actually solving more problems? Yeah. Is the society net better off? Right. Right. Or are we just satisfying our urge for uh, vengeance and punishment and so on and so forth? Yeah. And and certainly, um, you know, there's a degree to which we have criminalized behavior that is never going to go away. And, you know, like the war on drugs being the canonical example of that. And rich white kids don't get in trouble for <laughs> drug crimes and poor right. black kids do. And that, you know, that that's just crazy nonsense. Yeah, it's uh, if, if you wonder why our economy is uh, so racially divided, this is not the only reason. Yeah, but it's but certainly it's a, part of it's, a certainly, it's certainly a big, part of it. A big yeah. factor, a big factor. And, and if our goal here, Nick, of course, is, you know, what drives us is trying to close that uh, inequality gap, that income and wealth inequality gap across the board for everybody, yeah. not just for white people. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's probably not going to do it without reforming this system, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.